welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. I'm very happy to be introducing you today to Neha Kumar. Naya is an assistant professor at Georgia Tech and she has a joint appointment between the School of Interactive Computing and the Sam Nunn School of International Affairs. Her research area is around human-computer interaction for global development. And in this conversation, she discusses the circumstances and choices and people that contributed to her path from India to Germany to the US, where she studied at Stanford and UC Berkeley, with time working at Microsoft in between. She talks about her current faculty position and setting up her own research lab. And she also talks with great generosity and reflective insight about the penalties and privileges of always being an underrepresented voice in every room and the importance of respecting difference. She brings a similar capacity to take perspective and see the bigger picture in talking about her tenure process, her service roles, and how she looks after herself in the middle of all this. In all of these discussions, Naya brings an equanimity and a capacity for perspective taking and a generosity that I personally found very inspiring. I encourage you to particularly listen to the end and her powerful call to us to be stronger together. And just as a tease, we can give you an update on her tenure case then too. So Neha, thank you very much for joining me today. And Thank you so I, much for having me. I think it's interesting because we're both uh, COVID-displaced people back in our home cities. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because I'm sitting in Brisbane, Australia, and you're sitting in India. But we work yes. in totally different places to where we are. Yeah, that is probably the small uh, blessing that we have at present, right? That we can mm. be where we would hopefully like to be, or at yeah. least some of us. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, if I just think back, some of the, you know, the early CSCW research on distributed systems and distributed work and you know like it's it's taken a pandemic in a way to really bring it into its own yeah, um, but I know and also recognize that there's so much so much more to be done in that space right because that's it, the indeed. other thing I've been hearing yeah 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 so how did you end up moving from India to the US for your degree your bachelor's degree um yeah that was a long time ago so I didn't actually move directly from uh from India to the U.S. I happened to be in Germany for a couple of years uh that's where I finished my high school so I was in India until um 10th grade basically and then uh my father who um worked with the government he was posted um uh at the uh, Indian embassy in Bonn in Germany. And so that was uh, uh, not what I wanted to do at 16. I did not want to be moving uh, continents. I was extremely happy where I was. So that was uh, a difficult move, but it was also a move that kind of um, shaped 
I suppose, my attitude to to future periods of change, I would say. Mm. And uh, when I was in Germany, I was uh, in an international school and everyone around me was applying um, to programs in different countries. And so that's what I ended up doing. I was... Mm. Merely doing what everyone around me was doing, I think. Right. <laughs> and so that took me to the yeah. US. I love how decisions, uh, we make decisions that, you know, it, you, people looking in from outside might think were very carefully considered, but so many of our decisions nope. end up being <laughs> these sort of, you know. And and what do you mean yeah. by it shaped your um, experience or attitude around future periods of change? In what way was that? <clears throat> I think it was uh, it was just such a radical shift, right? Like I had never actually left India before. Mm. I and so just to be in a place where, uh, well, on the one hand, it was a completely different uh, lifestyle because it was such a different country, and mm. you know, India things are kind of ad hoc in a lot of ways in a lot of you know pockets of life and then you end up in in Germany and things are not quite that way and so uh it's it's kind of mind-blowing and and so uh that change was uh really something to reckon with and then the other thing was just being at a stage where um you know, you're used to having so many people and friends around you and I really did and um in India, where I had grown up and been pretty much in the same school uh, all through, uh, to now being in a place where you know you're in uh, suddenly in eleventh grade, and you uh, it, it's 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 also unfortunate that I started the school year late, so I joined about five weeks in, mm. and so uh, that's not really a time when people are so willing to kind of you know take you into their uh, circles, and so it took me about a year to really adjust to that shift. And it was a year that I was, you know, spending writing lots of letters. And these were letters like on paper. I think we did have email, but people didn't really use it in India that much. And so it it was just a lot of letter writing, a lot of tears, a lot of, you know, I I don't have friends. I I don't know what I'm doing here. I want to head back. And so, so that was also the interesting part, actually, that I really wanted to come back to India after um, uh, finishing high school. And that was the time that, um, you know, everyone was applying to schools and I was also. Um, And then I applied to Berkeley because uh, I had family in the San Francisco Bay Area. My sister was actually in uh, California then as well. Mm. And and so I happened to apply because it was close to her and close to other family. And I got in, but I had no intention of going. <laughs> and, and people told me it's a good school. And I was like, yeah, but I want to be in India and I want to be with my friends. And uh, and then one of my friends from India actually visited. Uh, she visited me in Germany. And um, she was, in fact, the one who was like, Neha, you're, you're being silly. Like, this is a great opportunity. You have to take it. You have to go. And I, I think I said for a long time after that I went to Berkeley because she made me do it. <laughs> it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't for any other reason. And and funnily enough, I had no idea about like rankings and things, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I went and, and I was in these classes. And in my first week of classes, my professors were saying things like, 
oh, we have, you know, such a great program and it's like ranked such and such in the world. And I was like, really? That's nice. <laughs> like, that's lucky. <laughs> but I was quite naive as a mm. as an 18-year-old. Mm. And and you did computer science um, as a degree and then you went and worked in Microsoft yeah, as a as an engineer, computer science so, yeah. and math actually. And maths, I, yeah. I double majored in computer science and math, and uh, also not because I wanted to, um, but uh, <laughs> my mom made me. So, so, <laughs> so she she really wanted me to do computer science, and I kind of wanted her to stop telling me to take computer science classes. Mm. And so I took my first uh, CS class because she wouldn't stop telling me to take one. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm just going to take it. And then you're going to stop telling me to do this, right? And she said, yes, if I took it and I didn't like it, then she wouldn't ask me to. And I loved it. Uh-huh. And it, <laughs> it so that was, was a big uh, surprise to you that you were that it, you was, it. it was a huge yes it was such a and it was also embarrassing it was yet another one of those moments where I had to go back and tell my mom that uh yeah okay <laughs> I think I'll do this um math was always something that I had loved all through mm. all through I mean mm. since like uh primary school I think mm. so that was just always a you know a thing that that I was yeah. going to do so what and did you love I, about I, oh sorry uh, just actually go ahead. I was going to say, what did you actually, what did you love about the computer science? What aspect of it? I think it was about problem solving. Problem I really solving. Yeah. liked that aspect. I liked that it was possible to, and, and what's ironic is that what I really liked about it was that you could kind of contain the problems that you were trying to solve and find solutions for them. Right. And and I say it's ironic because that is exactly what I'm not doing in my life right now. (laughs) But but at that point, it just was lovely to be able to sit and and even like debug things and make them just perfect. Mm. Um, Right. And feel like, oh, this this works. And this is exactly what I was supposed to do. And I and I got there. Um, Yeah. And so that was fun for a few years. So. Going and then working in industry as an engineer, why come back to do a PH, a master's and PhD? Actually, I always wanted to do a PhD. So, no, I did my master's before I worked at Microsoft. Okay. Um, I did a master's in computer science. And at that time, I had started to do research. And, in fact, the, the first couple of papers that I wrote were around then. And they're very different from stuff I've done later. But at that point, I was really intrigued uh, ICS theory. And so I wanted to do um, work on designing algorithms. And I loved... Um, proving theorems and <laughs> right and and uh that was the thing uh, that my life revolved around and and I enjoyed it mm-hmm. uh and then it was just that no one in my family really had done a PhD and people didn't really think that there was much sense in it and then they thought I would be you know overqualified and where would I get a job and and so they said, well, you know, you should think about it. And why don't you just take a break for a couple of years and think about it? And then if you really want to do a PhD, you will come back. And uh, and so I did take a break um, to, to work then at Microsoft. And I was still in the same sort of uh, 
you know, geographic locations. Mm. I was still around my friends who were still doing their PhDs because um, I had stopped after my master's, but they were pursuing their PhDs. And so it was very much kind of surrounded by uh, people who were really into scholarship and research. And um, I stayed engaged with that community, but I also started to realize slowly that I didn't actually want to do um, just pure computer science or just uh, mm. CSD. So how did that, like, so there's a lot of things that you did because your friend told you to or your mother told you to and, and <laughs> yeah. then you found your own way and, you know, like you, you talked yeah. about loving the 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 contained problem and the problem solving and the more theoretical aspects and, you know, proofs and algorithm, algorithms and things. How did this shift come about? Because that sounds like it was something that was much more intrinsic from you. Yeah, so I was always very uh, involved in nonprofit work throughout college. Mm -hmm. In fact, there were semesters where I think I spent more time doing that work than classes and my grades showed <laughs> that, <laughs> that that was the case. Um, I, but I always thought that it was the thing that you also did right um, in your spare it, it wasn't time the main thing exactly yeah. in yeah. my spare time which which I kept pushing the boundaries off and yeah. so I was involved in an education um non-profit and 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 quite deeply involved I mean I I trained for and ran uh, a marathon to raise funds for it and I was like really motivated to do that I'm, I'm not a runner so that was you know if if you knew me you would know that that was a big deal it's a big <laughs> but... deal for anybody even a runner <laughs> yes. uh yeah it was kind of kind of crazy how that happened but um but I think that the shift really came about when I was working at Microsoft and mm -hmm. um, I was, you know, I was excited about the job because I used to say then that if someone randomly kind of met me on the street and, you know, I had to introduce myself and say what I did, I'd be able to say something that they would understand. Mm. And this mm -hmm. came after a few internships I had done working on products that weren't really that well known. So working on a product like PowerPoint was, you know, just really easy to talk about. And and I felt that I was working on something that people actually used, which was nice. But then um, somewhere as I was fixing bugs one after the other, <laughs> I kind of started to feel that uh, this is basically, you know, like the top 1%. I, I mean, I did, didn't do the math, but I kind of started to feel that this is a product that the top 1% of the world uses. And it's not really driving my passion. And I don't know what to do about it. And I, I call it my quarter life crisis. Um, mm -hmm. I was 25 so it does seem <laughs> apt to call it that because because I don't know 100 years is is how long we live uh god knows I don't really want to live that long but uh uh but it was a time that that I started to question these things I started to mm. go for talks I was lucky to be as I said around in a scholarly community and so I started to talk with people and ask them what I could be doing instead um <clears throat> I looked first at the School of Education and uh, there was a, uh, a person who I 
didn't know as a friend then, so I will say a, a person who was doing her uh, master's in the School of um, Education at Stanford. And this was in the learning design and technology program. And she um, needed some help. And so someone just directed me to her. And what she needed help with was doing a voiceover for her master's project, which was uh, an um, animated curriculum around HIV education. Mm-hmm. for schools in India. And uh, and she needed someone who could speak in an Indian accent. <laughs> and so that's why uh, I got involved. And and that is really kind of the, the, the big aha moment of my life, I would say, because I, as I was doing these recordings with her, and as you probably know, uh, doing recordings like this can take forever uh right because you keep going back checking the audio and you know all of that so I spent many hours with her and uh this is in fact a project that we ended up many years later I think more than 10 years later writing uh, a Kai paper about Mm. but um but at that point it was just in its starting um uh phases. And when I learned about this, I was like, this is neat. I mean, you get to marry your interest in education with your interest in technology, like what could be better? And that's what made me apply to the program. So when I got in, I think that is what opened a whole other set of doors. So I learned about the ICTD space because there were people in that circle doing work around education and technology. The field had only just started. The first conference was just taking place. And I met some folks there who still actually doing ICTD, but who were really um, willing to, to help out, to kind of orient me, to, you know, tell me these are the people you should be talking to. And so my first field, uh, field work experience was, in 2007, just before I started uh, my master's in this new field. Mm, and that, okay. that field experience was just, um, yeah, that, that was the, uh, the thing that I think changed yeah. my life, I would say. Yeah. Now, I think that that story is a really lovely example of the difference between um, the fact that we can be good at something, but it's not necessarily the strength that connects to that core. You know, you talked about passion and what you are naturally gravitating to. You know, like you are naturally mm-hmm. gravitating to the nonprofit work, and you know, but you were mm-hmm. thinking of it as a side, and you were good at the computer science and maths, and so that seemed like it was your main work, and recognizing that there's a way of shaping choices so that you can actually really be driven by what your core strength passions values are Um, I think that's brilliant I love how you put that and I will say that all of that was possible I think because I had these amazing people around me at different Mm. kind of points of time who really um, helped me along, pushed me along, kind of gave me the encouragement uh, and the space that I needed. My advisor, I would say in particular, when I started my PhD, mm. uh, never ever told me what to do. And initially that was frustrating, right? Uh, because you- <laughs> I, I really, 
people tell <laughs> you what to loved. do <laughs> exactly so uh so suddenly to have an advisor where every week we were talking about different things <laughs> and i was like what am i doing here and you know what i really liked about him was at the end well many things but at the end of the first year of my phd when i still felt completely clueless mm. uh there was there were these screenings that were taking place on campus of these films that had been created around um uh uh kabir so kabir is this mystic uh in indian poet uh, mm-hmm. from the 14th century or so and uh and there were these films these these sort of documentaries that had been made around his life and how he brought together different aspects of music um and 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 regional politics and caste politics and other social issues right and and i was deeply drawn to these films so i was going to each of these screenings and you know no matter whether i made other things or did well in classes like i went to these screenings because i was really interested and he saw me at one of these and he said well it seems like you're interested in this is this something that you'd like to spend time with over the summer and i was like that sounds like an interesting uh prospect i mean i really did not think this would count as research but <laughs> if you think you're okay with it then i would love that and so he he really did the work of kind of shaping my passion into mm-hmm. a research interest mm-hmm. which took some years i i did, i wouldn't say that it happened right away but uh but i think that 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 was absolutely um critical at that period like early in the phd to mm-hmm. be you know kind of pulled in that direction but but not forcefully just in a way that was really gentle and just mm. you know is this something that you would like to do and also something that you had already voluntarily chosen as a good way to spend your time so there's sort of something about mm-hmm. can we be more proactive in recognizing where our natural Exactly. and choices are that that point to where those lovely sweet spots might be and it's all about i think noticing right mm. um, so noticing as an advisor what what your mentee or what your advisee is really about i mm. think that was it's amazing when i think back to it really because yeah. i had no clue So, yeah. I felt at least that I had no clue. I just knew what I liked and what I didn't, but I didn't have kind of the sense to to shape something into a PhD and, and he did mm. that for me. Mm. It's a really important role of uh, that advisors play depending mm-hmm. upon how they play out that advisor role. So <laughs> yeah, and I wonder if he he sees it the same way also, right? Like that's the other thing. Uh so but but i i think he knows a little bit of that mm. yeah that's good so you've you've got a faculty position now as an assistant mm-hmm. professor and you have mm-hmm. your own lab called the tandem lab which stands mm-hmm. for <laughs> so it's a backronym obviously that should not be a surprise <laughs> uh it uh, it stands for technology and design uh towards empowerment yeah. uh where empowerment is definitely a word that is uh complex and that we try to unpack yeah. uh the politics around but and yes it's and it's very much uh, i will say focused on 
working with rather than working mm-hmm. for or working mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why the, the tandem. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's very different, as you said, from your original sort of thing of liking computer science because it was contained and you could solve problems. <laughs> yeah. this, this would be like the yes. opposite end of the spectrum. Absolutely. And I will tell you that in my undergrad, I did not take a course in HCI because people told me that it was too soft, too easy to <gasps> like, you know, the thing <laughs> that that computer science majors did not do. And so it was quite ironic that uh, I feel very differently about it. Now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as is being shown up by all of the really big societal problems and the challenges of AI and, you know, everything that's been exposed in the pandemic. It's all these complex human, social, other stuff that are, you know, being shown as really critical, really critical factors and the hard things to do. Um, And maybe that's part of it, right? Uh, Maybe the fact that it is so hard or it is so complicated is what kind of keeps people away because it mm-hmm. seems like that's not really a problem that I can find a solution to. Let me yeah. find the problems that I can find yeah. solutions to. I mean, even n- naming the problem, you know, in that sort of contained mm-hmm. way, let alone finding a solution. So how many people are in your lab then at the moment? Um, so I have about uh, six PhD students mm-hmm. Um One of them is in India, actually. She's not at Georgia Tech, but the others are at Georgia Tech. Mm -hmm. And then I have, um, at any given point of time, I would say three to four master's students and then one or two undergraduate students. Mm. And this, for me, is something that's a very American, a U.S. university culture, I think, where new faculty members is it right, are sort of expected to start up their own lab and that's part of defining your, I don't know, your research identity? Is is that a fair reading? I think so. So the interesting thing was that I didn't really know very much about the whole lab culture until in my first year at some point there was, uh, you know, an event where you had to kind of have students showcase their research and I found out that to be included in that event, you had to have a lab. And so <laughs> and, and so that's when I had to kind of quickly come up with a name for my lab and an, you know, an identity observed that would tell people this is what students in my lab do. But otherwise, it was just basically students working with mm. me. And we do have a space where we, we have a couple of spaces where the students that I work with sit yeah. Um, and so in many cases, that is about, uh, you know, having all the equipment that you might need to do the research that you do. But that's not really the case with the human centered computing program mm-hmm. where most, most students aren't necessarily working with, you know, systems or tools that they have to actually be physically co-located with. Um, but at the same time, there is a space that is dedicated yeah. to students in a lab. Did it make a difference for you having something that was now named? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think it, it's just easy to talk about it maybe. Uh, I think certainly people ask about this. Um, 
I think we have lab meetings and so it makes it easier to just say, okay, everyone who's quote unquote in the tandem lab mm-hmm. is invited to this. Uh, I don't know that I care that much for it because I think when you keep, you create structures to keep people in, you also create structures to keep people out. Mm, and so, um, yeah, that it's, it's fine. It's not something we think about. Although um, what we do like to do is use the word tandem a lot. <laughs> and so <laughs> I think most of our papers, uh, some way or the other, will use that word and, and will get a kick out of using it. Uh, but I, I don't know that it's... Uh, maybe the students feel differently, to be honest. Mm, maybe they do. Mm-hmm. But I, I wouldn't say that it, it it really makes a difference to how I think about mm. advising. Yeah. What have been the big challenges for you in stepping into this sort of role? And how would you define mm-hmm. it? You know, I was going to say sort of manager, supervisor, leader, like, you know, yeah. What have been the challenges and the learnings? I would say there's a couple of things. So, um, I mean, there's many things probably, but there are two that come to mind, right? Uh, so the first one was just, um, you know, when I was hired into this role, the person who hired me, who's also my uh, faculty mentor at this point, Michael Best, um, he went off on leave for three, three and a half years. <laughs> and and I didn't know that he was going on leave until I accepted the position. And, and so, uh, yeah, he knows I gave him a hard time about <laughs> this. But, but when I started... I felt completely isolated um, and I don't know in a, if it was in a bad way, but it was just a, oh my goodness, where am I? And, uh, and so I had to figure things out, um, uh, not having anyone else really doing the work that I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there were folks before at Georgia Tech who had done work in the ICTD space. And uh, there were still, you know, folks who weren't super active, but but around. Um, but I think it was a sense of, you know, uh, yes, we do have something of a reputation in this space, but not really. And so I had to design a course in my first semester, which then I had to teach again to make it an official course. Um, and then once you make it an official course, you have to add it to the right threads and such so that it counts for students because otherwise no one's going to take it unless, you know, they just kind of are really passionate about the, the subject. So all of that needed to be done. And and the other thing that complicated things was I have a joint appointment, right? And so what that means is uh, that I have... Um, uh, I have to kind of be in multiple places on campus at... Uh, on a given day, quite often, because I have meetings in different departments. And I, um, and so that was a challenge. And initially, people actually told me to be wary of that and to maybe not take on the job because it was this, this kind of complex joint appointment situation. I would say that I wouldn't have it in any other way. I think I've really enjoyed the fact that it it gave me one foot in like really thinking deeply about development and teaching students who were really passionate about development and then another foot in, you know, HCI and human-centered computing and being able to work with people who are amazing at that. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
But that was a challenge to begin with because I had to find my footing. And then what what it enabled me to do was actually because I didn't really feel like I was fully in one place, mm. right? I was kind of in both. So it wasn't really a contained existence again. It allowed me to also branch out and talk to other people on campus. And so there were other units on campus that were kind of aligned. Like there is a unit that cares very much about the sustainable development goals and has been doing a lot of programs around that. So I've gotten quite active uh, on that front and I have been over the years. And there's a design collaborative, which is different, like it's in the College of Design, which is different from computing and and from global development, but I've been able to uh, stay involved in that. So I think everything could be a blessing and a curse, right? And so it's just a question of molding it in that way. And I, I was actually going to draw that out because I think the key word that you just used there was it's a matter of moulding it in that way, which points to the choice that you had to make because you could have sat in the middle and gone, oh, my God, I've got double you know, <laughs> meetings to go to and poor old me and and, and focused <laughs> on the, the curse aspects. But actually I mean, making that shift to the blessings. Don't get me wrong. I am pretty sure that I do the poor old me bit as well, <laughs> but, but I do love it. I love it. I, I remember my first year thinking, my goodness, I cannot wait to get out of bed tomorrow and do this like new thing, right? And that for the first year of faculty, I've heard, and now I can think back and think that's kind of unusual and pretty I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. What was it that you couldn't get wait to get out of bed to do? Like, what was it that drove you? You know, my first year, I was things were kind of out of control, right? And I was just working with so many students, and I I didn't really have kind of the sense to to know like, okay, this is too many students. I need to cut down. So that was my year of figuring that out. And as I did, um, what was also really exciting was just meeting with these students, right? Like that's what really fired me up every day and so um there would be meetings there would be projects there would be just things so many things to talk about so many different projects to talk about right you feel like you're going to change the world in so many ways and then obviously you don't you realize everything takes time but just those um conversations with students were just so energizing I still kind of miss that period because there was just so much going on but I also know at this point that it's really important to kind of focus on a few things and spend more time Mm -hmm. doing uh, those fewer things. So that's one of the big lessons from the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah. But how do you then choose what are the few things? Because if you have a, you know, if if what you're driven by is changing the world, everything's (laughs) got potential to be part of that. So how do you practically uh, make those choices? This is something we talk about with my students a lot, actually, uh, about deciding what you want to do, right? So, in fact, just yesterday, I was having a conversation with my students who were trying to decide on this project, and they said, well, they had four options. And I said, all of these four projects sound great. And so the question is, where are you going to be able to have most impact, Right. And most impact means many different things. It means uh, do you have the resources that you would need? For instance, if you need data, but that data is not freely available, then you're going to meet that bottleneck. 
Uh, it's a question of your own skills and aptitude. It's a question of your passion. Are you really going to see this project through to the end? Because if you don't care deeply enough about it, you're not going to want to continue it. And it's a waste of your time and mine. And we should figure that out early. Um, it's also a question of whether I can advise you on it or not, right? So I don't have skills in everything. I can do some things better than others. And so um, do we have all of that alignment in place? So um, I think it's it's also just about being pragmatic. So so having the passion to change the world is amazing and we need that. But also be extremely pragmatic about where you're going to be able to use your four months with me or your year with me to do something that will have meaning um, and value for you, mm-hmm. for you and for the world. Both of mm-hmm. those are important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any other um I don't know, ch- challenges or lessons or learnings, whatever, in stepping into these roles? Yeah, I think um, I think one thing I did kind of recognize is just always being, and, and this sort of is a reality that, that, uh, that I live with every day, is just always kind of being an underrepresented voice uh, mm-hmm. in every room that I'm in for the most part. Um, so I wasn't super familiar with the term woman of color. I wasn't used to having it uh, be used on me. Uh, that became quite the norm when I was in Georgia Tech, when I started. And I think it was, I don't know if it was a function of being in Georgia or a function of being uh, faculty, where which is just kind of, you suddenly see very few faces that are like you around you, mm. right? Um and so that was something that uh, I think needed contending with and just recognizing that sometimes, and, and there's many aspects to that, I would say. So yes, it's it's about being a woman. Yes, it's about being a person of color. Yes, it's about being an immigrant, right? And so not always speaking um, in a way that's easily understood, it seems. And, uh, Even right. though and we all speak have- English. <laughs> Right. And and many times I've, you know, been told uh, how how good my English is. And I'm like, well, what do you expect? I've been learning it since I was a baby almost. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, things like that. So there's there's many different aspects of that. Plus working in a space that's not like super, uh, you know, I don't know if popular mm-hmm. is a word, but it's just it, it's not like in a in a school that is so focused on technology, working in a space that is, you know, firstly, you're looking at a global context all the time. And that's not really what many of us in the US are really trained to do. And then second, just looking at the development context uh, brings its own challenges. There's not a lot of resources. Um, so so being in a, occupying a space where there are all of these kind of, I guess, penalties and privileges at the same time right you're you sort of have to um deal with some of those situations in in ways that aren't always pleasant and so i think what i started to do more and more was just try to get comfortable with being the silent voice in the room and just trying to focus on uh listening more and um, maybe that's just my kind of default mode of operation, but it also has helped. So just um, trying to listen to how things um, uh, how things 
work, like how people think, what are the things that they value? What are the things that they want to push? What are the decisions they want to make? Why are they making them? Right. And, um, and so being able to listen, I think is just overall a good thing for, for, for learning how to be and how to not be. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make me quite often the quiet person in the room. <laughs> and, uh, and again, I think that culture, the academic culture, at least in the US, I would say is not really the, the place where you're, um, deeply respected you know uh for for being the quiet person in the room so i think mm-hmm. that that's been sort of a, a little bit um i wouldn't say it's been a struggle but it's uh it's been a different type of an experience yeah. the thing that i will say kind of helped me quite a bit um to deal with that and to be at peace with that was this book that i read called quiet i don't know if you know that book no i don't um, it's uh it's a book about introverts uh oh the, and, and how okay. they, yeah uh, and uh, I think the author's name is Susan Cain actually yes yes I couldn't yeah. yes I know that of the book I haven't read it but I know yeah. of the book that's um about introverts it's and a Susan wonderful, Cain wrote it yeah yeah and it's mm. it's deeply validating but it's also um just something i am now able to kind of share with my students if i think that would be of use to them mm. and i think i think that that's uh that's what i would say it has been the sort of the the main struggle from time to time so there are multiple dimensions of that you're negotiating there, as you said, it's the woman, it's the colour, it's the immigrant, it's the research topic and dimensions of that, and it's individual differences in terms of personality and what are the more dominant cultural styles of interaction. And so it sounds like it's been a journey to find your own voice, would we say, and identity or something. Which I hope that it is for all of us, right? Mm. But I would say that that's been, um, that has been the experience uh, for me, yeah. Mm. But maybe many of us don't have to do it so reflectively if we happen to be (laughs) part of the more uh, dominant dimension, whatever that dimension is that matters. I mean, and I, I would also, I, I see what you're saying. And I also feel that no matter what it is that we're dealing with, for us, it fills up our lives, right? And uh, and then there's always uh, aspects of things that we haven't thought about. And I, I think definitely over the last few years, if I were to think about experiences where I've been forced to confront my own biases, there have been some. And, um, and I think in those moments, you really have to recognize that just because you have a certain set of things that are pulling you back doesn't mean that others don't have their own right and I think you had um, Rosa Ariaga on 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 this uh, podcast right Uh, so Rosa once said to me uh, wise words and I've, I've always kind of kept them in the back of my mind she said you cannot compare another person's um outs to your ins and 
And I thought that that's just a great way to live life, to always just <laughs> leave a little bit of room for people's ins that you just know nothing about. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's it's hard to do because it's so easy to judge based on the little that we see. But I think it's been helpful in just figuring out that um, that everyone has their stuff going on and they're probably dealing with different things. And there are privileges that we we have sometimes that we kind of take for granted. Mm. You know, one time I, I was I, I see this often um, with English, right? That this is something that comes up in our profession all the time. <laughs> I remember one one day walking to school and thinking, you know, for for all of the uh, all of the bad at the British did to India when they colonized it. Thank thank God that I was forced to learn English growing up so that I can do my job the way that I do it, right? Mm. That I don't have to struggle with that in, in writing my papers. Yeah. And uh, I, and I can't believe that that's something that I was even thinking that oh, I'm <laughs> grateful for this, maybe. No, no. I don't know. <laughs> I, I've yeah. become much more conscious of that as well, working within a German-speaking context. And I am just so mm-hmm. in awe of people who are expected to play on the same level who yeah. aren't native speakers um you know and it's just extremely hard mm. yeah and and it's interesting also talking about the ins and outs and not knowing and it's especially the case in a profession where there's so much emphasis put on curating the out mm-hmm. you know like being mm-hmm. seen to you know like putting across the right sort of out we need to put out in order to advance or whatever um, and develop yeah. our profiles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's problematic because I don't think that we really allow for our authentic sides to come out, mm. right? We, we yeah. have to follow this narrative and then Twitter doesn't help, right, mm. or any social media. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. I think that we, we rarely get to know people, Oh. Mm. when we do it's wonderful but but it's hard yeah and it's rare yeah and I love your listening stance as well that's something we could all learn to do more of is just listen more to each other as part of that it would be nice listening and um what I'd I'd hope we do more of is also respecting the different perspectives that we hear right yeah and I think part of this is also like we're so tied to this performance right um that we always feel this pressure to be right and that's something I've been thinking Mm. about how we don't give ourselves room to be flawed but we Mm. are we are inherently flawed uh, except we want to make it I look have. like, <laughs> and, uh, no, but honestly, right? Like we, right. we, we don't want to get called out for our mistakes, and that hurts us. And and it's happened to me. I've I've gotten called out for for things publicly uh, that that have hurt me. And at the same time, it's it's kind of this choice of like, do I fight back? Is there power in that? Or do I accept that I did something wrong? And is there power in that? Mm. And and I think um, this notion that we have of power and where it sits is something for us to unpack. I think everybody, because um, I honestly think that we 
we we do much more justice to ourselves and to the world when we accept that we were wrong about something. Mm. Yeah. It can be hard to accept, though, can't it, especially you know, in this sort of culture of, you know, that, that's tied to perfection and feeling like you've been caught out. And it's that thing of giving each other permission that actually we are, we are all inherently flawed. And I liked the, the, the choice about also, you know, do you go on the offence and... And it, sometimes there might be power in that, but what I heard you reflecting on was where was your motivation coming from? Like was it to dig in and get defensive or was there a real issue that did need to be addressed in, in somehow addressing it? I and think it's about what's liberating, mm-hmm. right? I think it's tremendously liberating to feel like I can grow in this moment mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah. I'm just going to stay put and not move. Yeah, yeah. And it's a lifelong journey in that growing. I, yeah, that that absolutely. for me, as I as I get to this sort of pointy end of my career, is you know, is an interesting recognition that there's always growing. Um, yeah, always growing. every day, every hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, where are you in the tenure process then? Talking about <laughs> talking about our uh, <laughs> tied to perfection and and curating our personas. Uh, so, so last year, um, I was, uh, well, I was supposed to go up for tenure Mm. and then Georgia Tech gave, uh, everybody a year off, um, on their, uh, tenure clock basically because of COVID, right? Except I didn't take that year. So I did go up for tenure (laughs) and, and currently my tenure package is being reviewed and uh, let's see what uh, what happens. So generally, the process begins actually around February or March uh, mm-hmm. for us, and then there's many different kind of steps mm-hmm. along the way. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we've you know, and in the middle there was this big kind of decision making period where I had to figure out is now the time or should I wait for a year and should I take this year or should I not and is it going to be stressful doing this during COVID? But then the the truth is also that COVID has given me a distraction for everything else, right? So when you find something worrying you, you can think about COVID and all your other worries will go away. So, uh, so yeah, I, uh, uh, I should hear soon to, right. to give a and short answer to your question. How has that experience been? Because I often hear of people, again, within the, the sort of systems that you're in, that it's an incredibly stressful process was that your experience I mean in getting to be able to well I don't know in getting to be able to put together your package or feeling like you've 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 um performed well enough or whatever yeah it's it's interesting I mean uh so so one of my uh colleagues once said this in a faculty meeting which I think was really um well clearly I remember it now four or five years later but he said that um, if, uh, you know, it's it's the people who are not worried about tenure um, who are most likely to get tenure. 
And and I was like, yeah, I think that's the place to be. You should be in a place where you're not worrying about Daniel, right? Mm-hmm. Except you're always worrying about Daniel because mm-hmm. it, there's so much tied to it. And I think especially, I don't know, I, 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 I'm sure that I can find another job if I weren't to get Daniel, right? But it, it still feels like something that you're supposed to get. Like there's so much um, mm-hmm. kind of tied to that. And uh, I think for me, the main challenge has just been balancing two different departments. And so, because I can't really say, as I said, I can't really say that my work doesn't um, speak to one, right? It's not like I can I can toss out uh, one appointment and think, yeah. well, I can do all of what I do here. I could possibly, but I think it's, it's much better this way. And so that's been something to just um, contend with, that there are... Uh, wins right of of being in a place where I get to have both these hats and then there's also challenges because it's Mm -hmm. two completely different set of faculty with very different expectations you know like conferences for instance versus journals right uh that's the the perennial uh concern so that's one then it's also Mm -hmm. just well what is Sikai right (laughs) like that's uh um uh, not not clear uh, to people or what even is the ACM and mm-hmm. what are all these like, right? So so there are people who don't understand that language. And so it's hard for them to really understand what you're doing. And um, uh, it also sometimes feels a bit disempowering because you feel like you're doing well, but then people don't really know what to make sense of when they see your performance. So um I think through the years, I've gotten basically uh, good advice from from mentors uh, helping to navigate that and also doing it in a way that feels more authentic, I think. Um, I wouldn't say that it ever kind of stopped being stressful. I think I think the stressful bit is really because you feel like often you don't have a very strong voice in conversations, uh, right? Because you're junior, but I think that happens everywhere. Mm. Um, it's really just, uh, there is often the sense of, oh, uh, you shouldn't do this before tenure, right? Or you should do this after tenure, which I find kind of interesting because I feel like it's the same life. Like I, mm. I, I don't expect to suddenly change after I get tenure. Maybe the things I say will, but not the things I feel, I hope. Um, but but that's uh, that's taken some navigation as well. Like I think I definitely said one or two things in faculty meetings that I now regret and wish I hadn't because I didn't you know didn't realize that it's not my job to to say these things as very junior faculty. Um, but I I, I, and I I'm sure I burned some some uh, bridges along the way because of that. But hopefully. Uh, uh, nothing too bad um so so yeah I think it's all been a a mixed bag I think one piece of advice I got to deal with this kind of joint appointment thing was think of your life as being larger than Georgia Tech right think of your Mm -hmm. your life as being um uh, this one life where you you get to be employed at one place but academia is much bigger and obviously the world is much much more Um, than academia and so what is it that you want to see yourself doing what is your definition of success you have to be true to that and I think that 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 advice at the end of my first year from my mentor was everything I always went back to that I always thought about it as like even if Georgia Tech doesn't give me tenure um, at least I will know that I did the things that really uh, mattered in this in this time and so I, I can look back now and what's been 
tremendously empowering actually after I turned in my packet was to be able to say that that is what I did. Now, if I don't get tenure, well, that's going to suck for a bit, but I'm not going to feel like I wasted my life for yeah. these years of my yeah. life. Because the, the motivation came from within and it reflects who you are and your values and what you want to do. I think so. I hope mm. so. Yeah. And in the course of doing this as well, you've also been hugely active in all sorts of service roles. So there was the ACM Future of Computing Academy and you're now um, leading that in, in this sort of next iteration and and sort of SIGCHI, um, Vice President Large and things like that. So how did you fit everything in? You know, because you're setting up your new lab, you're doing the teaching, as you said, and having to get your courses into the into the threads and um, mentoring all the students and having too many and having to pull them back and, you know, all the research that you're interested in and all these other roles. How did you make it work? Um. I think, yeah, that's a really good question and not one that I don't get, by the way. Uh, I, I I think it's been a lot. I think it's uh, it's definitely been a lot of work. I think what's made it much easier is that I've been doing it with people who've been really easy to work with. Um, so, you know, and I would say, let me actually be clear. So with the FCA, the Future of Computing Academy, it was with, uh, so I have a vice chair uh, who helps me a lot in the role, uh, Luigi De Rusis. And, um, and we've, we've had a really good relationship throughout in kind of, um, you know, having a shared goal for the group, mm. having a shared mm-hmm. vision for how we wanted to support it, um, how we wanted to grow it, uh, dealing with tensions that arose along the way of which there were. Mm-hmm. many uh and and it was it, it's it's been fun and it was fun to have the meetings where we would kind of plot and figure out how do we navigate these situations and there was a lot of plotting <laughs> it was also just fun and um with Sikai, i would say that uh, there have been really some people um uh, on the executive committee who have been tremendously inspiring um but also my committee so a year ago I realized that there were things I wanted to do that I, I couldn't just all like do them all on my own. And so I uh, I asked Helena, who's uh, president, if I could um, have my own committee and have people basically helping me on this. And she gave the go ahead. So I, um, you know, did the thing, which is you set up an open call and you try mm-hmm. to advertise mm-hmm. it to people, and you hear back and then you set up a committee. And so uh, on that committee, I recruited... Uh, it was four people. So we were, there were five of us. Um, and then I also recruited uh, actually the, uh, a, an advisory group of sorts, which isn't really a committee, so to speak, but it's a group of advisors who I can go to and say, well, mm-hmm. I need help or I need feedback or I need, mm-hmm. you know, your perspective. Uh, so so that group is totally international. So it goes from, you know, from, yes, the US, but also um, Latin America and China and um, Europe and uh, uh, Iran and, and India. Okay. So um, it's a really international group of people. Um, uh, at the time uh, that we did the recruitment, one of the members was in Rwanda. Uh, currently, he's back in the U.S. 
but it was nice to just be able to talk to people uh, from these different pockets and get their perspectives. Mm. And it was also energizing um, mm. just to have that kind of uh, diversity and desire to to make Sikhai yeah. more global, really. Yeah. So it's always, yeah. I would say, managing these roles has been a breeze just for that purpose. I wouldn't say it's been easy in terms of time commitment. Yeah. But I think it's been fun. Like we, the the committee, and even for the FCA, we have meetings weekly, yeah. and we're generally in touch. And those are uh, meetings that really energize and mm-hmm. don't, you know, suck mm-hmm. your energy away. So I think that that has uh, really made all the difference. And I've just been really, really lucky because I think if that weren't the case, and I would just yeah. not want to do any work. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So having doing it with the right people can. Mm-hmm. turn it into fun and energizing so still it's taken a lot of time how do you look after yourself what are your own you know in the in the little bit of time that you do have, you know how do you look after your your own sanity and health and well-being and things um i'm i'm hugely into yoga i really enjoy yoga um in india i don't have my yoga studio close by i guess and and even in um uh Atlanta, uh the yoga studio that that I go to hasn't really been accessible during covid right no but that's been sort of my um uh kind of uh i don't know a haven of sorts i would say like i've really enjoyed going to uh yoga classes which i would do about four times a week or five times a week if if wow. not even more yeah, yeah, I did that uh, often. And then during COVID, I would just do it every day. So because there were classes every day online. And um, that's tremendous, right? And keeping your sanity and keeping you feeling like healthy and fit. Um, also meditation, I've been doing various types of meditation mm-hmm. for a, quite a long time. And that's been helpful. Um going for walks like these are the things that I do I guess from uh, uh, from a physical perspective and then I would say that there are things that I have kind of on hold that I want to continue once <laughs> post tenure right the <laughs> thing that people say like once you have once tenure, I you get will... tenure yes <laughs> so uh, so yeah I used to do a ton of photography before I started uh, at Georgia Tech and I just haven't done enough of it at all mm. so that's that's been something that I really am committed to resuming once mm. <laughs> once I have tenure. Uh, and uh, it's also just um, people. So making sure that I'm surrounded in some form, even if not physically, by people who mm. uh, are the, the, like, yes, there are great people in academia and great, like, you know, friends and students who are friends and former students who are great and and colleagues who are wonderful, but also just uh, family and friends outside of mm. academia. I think it's really yeah. important to keep those ties alive. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Lovely. So in uh, just looking to wrap up, are there any things that you would want to add or say anything I could have, should have asked or that, that you'd want to just finish off with? Yeah, in, uh, I guess in, in trying to um, include, we leave out things. I don't know that I would, I don't know that there is one thing that I would say. Um, I think uh, 
I think for me, it's been wonderful to just have this chance to talk with you. Mm. And uh, I was saying to somebody that uh, I get to actually be on a call with Geraldine as like <laughs> for an hour <laughs> to to talk about my life, like uh, what could be better, uh, but also just a chance to to reflect on things. Uh, and I think this time for reflection is probably necessary and probably time that we should all take out uh, for. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things going on in the world that we have to kind of uh, figure out what our role is going to be in the context of it all. And I hope uh, that we think a little more about each other and a little less about ourselves alone. And if there was one thing that I would hope for it would be that to really believe in the power of the collective uh, to believe in solidarity to believe that we're stronger together and that mm. um, we cannot really do better by putting other people down we have to kind of rise up together yeah and uh, to me that that's super important to remember in in kind of the minutest of things that we do um and and i think it's it's terribly important given the the state of the world as it is right now yes I mean, yes we're very hopeful in the us that things will be better but i kind of feel like that's uh, uh we have a long way to go before yeah. <laughs> we can really be confident of that so mm-hmm. I, i think it's important for us to remember that uh that we're all in this together and as one of uh my colleagues also said um that we're all really walking each other home and that's something mm. that we should always uh remember even as we are a scholarly community for instance i think that it's still important to remember yeah well thank you for reminding us of these things because they are so so important and thank you for role modeling them so beautifully in the choices that you make in your life So thank you for your time there. It's really been great thank to chat. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thank you, Geraldine. And now for the update that was promised. Uh, we can tell you that Neha was successful in getting tenure. So congratulations, Neha. And she is now an associate professor at Georgia Tech. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently.